Welcome back to the 19th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Today, we're going to be going through some stories about the Supreme Court. Their new term has started, and I want to gauge where we think they're going and some of the important cases they have coming up on the docket. And of course, we will end today with the Daily Delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's get into the stories. And I say that, but actually, I do want to start with something new, a new segment, so to speak. And we'll see how it works out. We'll see if people like it, if, you know, people actually comment. It's called the Daily Debate. And on a scale from 1 to 10, how much faith do you have in the Supreme Court? And if you want to comment below and you do comment, I would ask if you're willing to disclose your political leaning or affiliation. That doesn't have to be, oh, I'm a hardline Democrat, I'm a hardline Republican. If you're a neocon, if you're a moderate, if you're a libertarian. I just kind of want to gauge where a lot of these uh, different populations stand when it comes to their perception of the Supreme Court. Because we always see lots of different studies from different organizations, and they could be asking the questions in a way that's a little biased or could lead people to particular answers. So this you know, gives me a scale out of 1 to 10. How much faith do you have in the Supreme Court? Very easy, very simple. If you'd like to take time, head on down to that comment section. But now that we got that out of the way, we can start with our first story, which comes from the New York Post. It is titled, The Left Wants the Supreme Court to Rule with Public Opinion Only When It's Convenient. So on Monday, if you didn't already see the news, that the Supreme Court entered a new term. And the only real big change here is that Ketanji Brown-Jackson is now uh, the ninth member of the Supreme Court. But beyond that, it, it doesn't necessarily mean much. They're going to go about business as normal. Roberts is still the chief justice, so and it's still controlled, at least in the eyes of many, a lot of uh, people on the left, it's controlled by the right. And I put that in air quotes because at the end of the day, technically, it would be more accurate to say that it's controlled by constitutionalists, people that view holding the standards that are presented in the Constitution more valuable than trying to rework the law to fit our current understanding of society and so on. So, you know, it's a kind of a tricky battle there, and most of them tend to be from the right. So, you know, that's a, that's a fair assessment. But at the end of the day, judges are meant to be impartial when it comes to politics. They're meant to be above politics and just look at the merits of a case and whether... They have you know, spent years going through the court system, uh, clerking for different judges, and using that experience to say, okay, does this fall within the parameters of the Constitution? Does this uh, affect people in an adverse way that will hurt their constitutional rights, so on and so forth? So the article talks about how the left has started to claim that because of its more recent decisions— the court has, quote, lost the public's confidence. And it also claims that it's in crisis mode. Most importantly, like I mentioned earlier, 
it says, quote, the court has turned into a judicial arm of the Republican Party, end quote. But the author it comes down really strong on this one, and she, she disagrees with a lot of these points, and she does it categorically. She says, for the point about it being the judicial arm of the Republican Party, she says, quote, that's blatantly false. In July 2020, all nine justices rejected Donald Trump's argument that as a sitting president, he was shielded from Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance's investigation. After the 2020 election, the justices declined unanimously all three petitions from Team Trump to re-examine vote counts in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. This summer, the justices nicked Trump's request to block the January 6th House Select Committee from examining White House records. This court is not taking orders from the Republican Party, end quote. And I think she points out a lot of good things there. Though... I believe three out of the nine justices at this point were appointed by Trump. They are not doing him any favors. Now, with some of their more recent decisions, maybe you could say that they're doing him some favors. And by him, I more mean they're doing the Republican Party and Republican voters some favors. But they are not using their power in a negligent way to help Donald Trump. You know, they're upholding the the standards of law and they're saying, no, you can't get away with what you got away with, Trump. You know, if you're going to be bombastic and you're going to uh, make claims like this about Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, you really got to back them up. And he couldn't back them up. So Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, they said, hey, we're not doing a recount, which, you know, it doesn't necessarily prove that they're not working, you know, in favor of the Republican Party because, of course, if they really did, say, recount the electoral votes, then people would have even less confidence in them. The left would say, oh, look, look, they're doing exactly what Donald Trump wants. So maybe they're saving face a little bit. But at the end of the day, if they're willing to save face over play political favorites... Uh, that's still that's still something that you know could be used to say well they're not they're not really in the bag for the republicans but on the other point that the author says the left brings up uh the the court has most definitely been divisive to say the least the best example we have recently is dobbs v jackson which made sure that the decision for abortion goes back to the states rather than being controlled on a federal level. And it's not just like it was controlled on a federal level through legislation. That's the important part. It was controlled on the federal level through a Supreme Court decision back in the 70s. So you got to remember here, it's not like the Congress or this the Congress ever got legislation passed that enshrined abortion into law. It was a backhanded way in the Supreme Court system that got that uh, to be a quote-unquote constitutional right, which, you know, whether you agree with that or not, the, the legal standing on that was very shaky. But the left was very happy with the enshrinement of abortion or the saying, yes, you can have an abortion up until the first trimester. And they didn't riot then. But now that they are not getting their way, so to speak, the author says. And actually, I, I, you know, I always say, oh, well, the author says I do. I do agree. 
at the end of the day, if you have a political belief, if you believe that women should have the right to abortions within the first trimester, and the court disagrees with your opinion and actually makes it harder to have abortions in some states, saying that it's no longer protected by the federal government and now it's up to the states, if they're making that harder, of course you're going to be discontent. Of course you're going to have less faith in that institution. It's like a poll that I read out a few podcasts ago that Americans, when their party loses the election, they have less faith in the election. That's just human nature. Now, does that mean that they are acting in bad faith, the Supreme Court, when they make these decisions? Does that mean that their legal reasoning is not absolutely superb and it is the finest legal reasoning in all the land? I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that people really don't like it when their team loses. You know, I was watching the Redskins-Cowboys game this weekend, and I watched the Redskins lose, and I was like, Ugh. This is why I don't watch them anymore. And I know it's a different situation, but at the end of the day, that statement that I made, this is why I'm not going to watch it. This is why I don't watch them anymore. It just proves that I don't have faith in them to win that game. So if the Supreme Court comes against your personal political opinion, of course you're not going to have faith in them. And of course they're going to be perceived as divisive. But... The author points out that this attack, or not even attack, these criticisms from the media was okay when they aligned with the rest, when the court didn't align with the rest of America in the 1950s and 60s. Quote, Earl Warren became chief justice in 1953 and presided until 1969. During that period, the court remade constitutional law and reshaped American society striking down school segregation, opposing the one-man-one-vote rule to draw voting districts, demanding the criminal suspects be read their, quote, Miranda rights, and appealing the Bill of Rights guarantees to that limit states and locals' governments, not just federal government, can do. The left was okay with Warren's boldness because it liked its outcomes, end quote. And this is very a very good point to look at it historically because a lot of these news agencies have been around since the time, at least the ones that really called out the Supreme Court here, which was the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN didn't exist at that time, so we can't look at them. But what she's trying to point out here is in the past when they, the Supreme Court was willing to push the boundaries, was willing to be unpopular and not necessarily hold with the American populace, like the New York Times is arguing they should today, the media was all for, oh, yeah, 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 go ahead, Supreme Court, you do your thing, you push the boundaries. And now they're criticizing the Supreme Court for doing practically the same thing, pushing boundaries, trying to, quote-unquote, lead culture. So... It's just the hypocrisy is very, very interesting. And like she said, the left is a very active populace. And when they see something they don't like, they are in the media, the ones in the media at least, are going to call it out. And speaking of the left in the media, our next article comes from the Next Republic. You like that transition? That was, that was a stellar one right there, right? The Supreme Court might be on the brink of making corruption easier again. So the case we're talking about here that is going to be heard by the Supreme Court is Percoco versus United States. 
and I'll give you a little bit of context, and I have written this down, so sorry if it sounds a little bit bland. Joseph Percoco, top aide to Andrew Cuomo, stepped down to run a campaign, but still had access to his work phone and informed people he would return to his position after the campaign is over. So the context, and I'll summarize it very simply, basically he left the public service lifestyle or the framework and then became a private citizen running an election campaign. And then, as I'll quote from the article here in a second, he kind of traded favors. He kind of got uh, used his position that he's not necessarily, he's not officially still working for Cuomo, but they used the possibility of going back into that position to get uh, benefits and help out some of his donors from the campaign. Quote, while he was on the campaign, a real estate developer funneled two payments totaling 35000 through an interme- intermediary to Perico's wife after the payments and days before he officially returned to government. Perico used the government phone in his former government office to call a state official and urge him to waive a labor requirement that would have driven up costs for the developer. The state official told a higher-up that he was, quote, facing pressure from his, quote, principles. The agency ultimately agreed to waive the requirements. So you have to ask yourself in this one, what's, what's the sticking point? Why does the New Republic think that this is worth bringing up and why it's important. And the sticking point, or at least in my opinion, why it matters, is essentially if someone works in a government office, whether that's federal, state, any type of government office, and they leave temporarily and they say, oh, I'm going to go run a campaign or maybe I'm going to run a nonprofit for a little bit but they keep all of the utilities that they had from their job, their work phone, their work email, things of that nature, and they continually tell people, oh, I'll be back. No, no, it's just temporary. I'll be back someday. It is a very clever way of saying, no, 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 I'm a private citizen. I can do what I want. If I want to tell somebody that, you know, you'll give me $35,000, I'll do this for you, then in some sense, that's okay. Now, it does get a little bit hairy when it comes to directly saying, oh, I will get this legislation passed for you. But if it's, oh, I'll, I'll help you out, I'll, I'll, I'll find a way to make it work, you know, you can kind of have this little gray area. And it opens up the door to lots of different corruption because, in theory, all you would have to do is step down, run somebody's campaign for three months or so, take money from those donors for the person that's campaigning. And you could even funnel some off to yourself and say, okay, um, I am going to go back to my position and I'm going to help you out, sir. You were a good donor to our campaign and you could get away with it. Now, you know, the lawsuit's not finished and I'm pretty sure it's obvious that the Supreme Court's going to have a strong opinion on this one. But the reason the New Republic is concerned is because it talks about the Roberts courts, so the court under Roberts, his history of being a little bit light or maybe the word they use is naive on different corruption cases. 
So if you remember the Bob McDonald case, and you know, if you're not a Virginian citizen, you may not remember this one, but Bob McDonald, quote, in the early 2010s, when Bob McDonald was governor of Virginia and heavily in debt, he accepted tens of thousands of dollars in loans from Johnny Williams, the CEO of a company developing a dietary supplement. Besides the loans, Williams took McDonald's wife on a $20,000 shopping spree on Fifth Avenue. Gosh, that is some way to treat a lady right there. (laughs) Let the governor use his Ferrari, bought the governor a Rolex, and covered the cost of McDonald's daughter's wedding reception. McDonald, meanwhile, instructed state officials who were in the position to initiate a research study that would help Williams' company to meet with Williams. McDonald's staff organized an event to promote the supplement, and the governor spoke in support of it. A jury found McDonald guilty of several corruption-related offenses, but the Supreme Court unanimously overturned the conviction. And this is why, end quote, and this is why it's a little bit scary, because on an individual basis, the Supreme Court has made about, they list maybe three different cases here that have all, you know, individually, there's good reasoning behind it. I mean, especially with this McDonald one, the reasoning was that McDonald never really used the office to implement favorable policy. He never used the power of the office to directly say, okay, we're going to put in legislation or an executive order that directly helps this company. He just organized events for them on his own bill. No, no, he he didn't actually start the research study. He just put the two people in the same room and said, if you want to talk about it, talk about it. So it's kind of backhanded in its nature. And the juries that heard this case obviously agreed, and they obviously had some idea of how politics works, or they were just cynical and they said, no, 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 McDonald definitely, definitely was corrupt here. But the Supreme Court looked at the merits and said, no, there was never any official proclamation. The money may have changed hands, but he's not using his office in a way that directly benefits the company. And, you know, on an individual basis, that's that's, you know, reasonable, though. I think that it's naive and it can be a little bit dangerous because it really opens the door. Oh, you know, as a governor of a state, you have a lot of influence and it's basically oh, yeah, no, I've been using this medication for a while now. I think it's great. And that kind of statement can hold a lot of weight, even if it's not in an official capacity. So I think it's a little bit naive on the court, uh, on the side of the court. But also, I'm not a lawyer. And the reasoning legally seems to be pretty sound. And the New Republic brings up that this is a trend, that on an individual basis, they've looked at lots of cases that don't necessarily sound bad in their legal reasoning. They, you know, they sound idealistic about the way that the American system works, that these lobbyists and these trading favors or, you know, preemptive stock purchases or favorable land and leasing deals, all of these things, it's, they seem idealistic that these things don't have as much of an influence over American politics as they actually do. I'm sorry to inform you if you don't know, but American politics is extremely corrupt. I mean, we literally have an entire sector, lobbyists, 
who live in Washington, who come out of the political system, and they are thrown into lobbyist organizations so that they can fight for these companies and use the favors and the sway that they have from when they were working inside Congress or at the White House. So, yeah, I'm sorry to tell you, America it has a lot of corruption. Now, is it as bad as some third-world countries, and is it as blatant? No. But it's very clever. They've created a whole industry where it's, oh, it's completely okay to give money to politicians in order to get what you want passed. Which, as Robert points out, it shouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. One of the key things the article keeps coming back to is Robert says, well, you need to have moneyed interest. You should be able to buy time with an official in order to sit down and discuss your issues. Because... It's a democracy. It's a free system. And that congressman, that person that's running for office is very busy. So if you need to buy that time, it's okay. And let's be clear, he doesn't say that outright. But, you know, it's kind of what he's getting at, that it should be okay to at least buy time with that person to sit down and discuss your issues and make sure that your opinion is heard in the democracy. And once again, it's a very noble sentiment. But that doesn't mean that in practice it <laughs> works the way that we want it to. And, you know, maybe I'm just a little cynical. Maybe I am just out here over, over emphasizing the importance of these corruption cases and the lobbyist organizations in America. But, you know, for the longest time, you, you've seen the revolving door. They come in one end, they go out the other, and they make millions. I mean, not to mention the speaking fees that some of these politicians incur when they're out of office. That's how the Clintons survived for years. They had a foundation where they would get donations, and they would go on speaking tours along with selling books, and then they would live off that fund. And, you know, they shut it down for a little bit, and they've reopened it now. They recently had a meeting with a lot of top world officials, but... Just remember that it's a revolving door and don't ever be caught being too idealistic or um, in favor of the lobbying system. In my opinion, you can have whatever opinion you want. If you completely hate me right now, if you are a D.C. government official, which I don't know why you'd be listening to this podcast. But if you're a D.C. government official and you're saying, Alex, this is how it needs to work. We need to make sure there are moneyed interests. We need to make sure that corporations have a voice in the American political system. Fine. Great. Leave it in the comments. We can talk about it. But until then, I'm going to hold my opinion, and I hope you nobody's too pissed off. Actually, I don't care. If you're too pissed off, you're too pissed off. Welcome to modern-day America. Everybody has different opinions. The next article that talks about the Supreme Court taking up a divisive issue, should tech companies have immunity over problematic user content and it comes from NBC News and here we go again folks we're talking section 230 I think I've been able to bring this up in more than half of my podcast so far and it's it's a topic that I'm I'm relatively passionate about or at least I have a lot of opinions about so a brief history of section 230 of the Communication Decencies Act uh, it allows platforms to work as both a platform and a publisher, meaning that people can put content up on their platform and they can't be held liable to some degree. And 
they can also moderate the content on their own platform. So they get to act as a publisher, but also as a platform where they can't be sued, even though they are moderating what is on that platform, which would then make them a publisher, meaning that they should be, in my opinion, and you know, there's some good legal backing here, that they should be liable for slander um, or any type of damaging statements that the people that put content on their platform uh, say or do. And, you know, to break that down a little bit more, imagine the New York Times. The New York Times can be held liable for slander against a person if they report a story that, you know, hurts their character or defamation as well because they are a publisher. They are actively choosing what goes on their website. They have an editorial board. They have oversight boards that are meant to be in place to actually review the content that they're putting out. And YouTube does the same thing. They review the content that is put out by their users, and they decide whether it's okay to monetize, so whether you can get it out to a wider audience, or even outright, if it violates the terms of service, you can ban them. So that's acting heavily like a publisher, meaning, in theory, they should be liable for any of the content on their platform. But because of Section 230, they are not liable. They can get away with not being sued and not having to pay damages to some of these families. And this is a what this issue or this article really delves into. Uh, quote, the Supreme Court on Monday stepped into the politically divisive issue of whether tech companies should have immunity over problematic content posted by users, agreeing to hear a case alleging that YouTube helped aid and abed the killing of an American woman in the 2015 Islamic State terror attacks in Paris. The family of Namani Gonzalez, one of the 130 people killed in a series of linked attacks carried out by militant Muslim groups, commonly known as ISIS, argued that YouTube's active role in recommending videos overcomes the liability shield for Internet companies that Congress imposed in 1996 as part of the Communication Decencies Act, end quote. And another important thing to notice here is that that the Communications and Decency Act was passed in 1996. The Internet has evolved a lot since 1996. We did not know we would have these massive tech companies and social media platforms so it is time to readdress this and i'm happy that the court is actually doing so so where where do you stand on this how responsible should companies be for the content on their platforms i mean maybe you're a person who's wants no moderation and then i would ask you well, what do you say to the families of these people that were attacked in Paris or other people that are have their kid commit suicide or become um, anorexic because of pro-anorexia content on YouTube. Because if there's no moderation, this stuff will be allowed to thrive and there could be subcultures. Maybe you're in favor of some moderation. But then the question for you is, where where does it stop? If we ban the usage of certain imagery, then what's going to stop the company from saying, oh, well, this thing looks kind of like it. We need to take that down, too. I mean, it's a slippery it's a slippery slope fallacy. And though that normally is a fallacy, you can't just say by itself something is a slippery slope. We've seen it happen. 
on Twitter, they started with policies that, oh, you can't be hateful. You can't be purposely malicious or call for violence against somebody. And now it's become, if you cause them emotional distress, you can also be removed from the platform. And it just keeps going. So you have to ask those questions if you want some moderation. And then the last one is maybe you want full moderation. Maybe you're one of those people that says, no, I want the companies to completely control what's on their content, their platform. Then I ask you, are you okay with them being 100% liable for what's on their platform? Are you okay with the possibility that your favorite company could be sued and pay millions upon millions in damages and may not be there you know, two years from now because they keep getting a large amount of litigation from people trying to exploit the fact that they are now able to sue these platforms. They're just important questions that you need to keep in mind from all perspectives. And I'm not trying to hate on any of them because there isn't a good answer here. It's a really hard question. And, you know, if you're a social media platform user, an avid one, you're going to have a different opinion than people like me who don't use social media practically at all, except for maybe YouTube and Twitter now. Yes, you can follow the podcast at Your Daily Flip, at Your Daily Flip on Twitter. Just had to plug that real quick. I can't believe I only did that 29 minutes into the podcast, but it is what it is. Or maybe even if you're a tech CEO, then you're going to have completely different perspectives on what should happen on these platforms. And if you're a person that gets banned from these platforms, like... Um, the redheaded libertarian who recently got put back on, she has a very anti-Twitter moderation stance because she's personally been affected. Her business was practically cut off from reaching millions of people on Twitter. So, you know, we're all going to have different perspectives, and I'm happy the Supreme Court is actually weighing in and kind of giving these um, companies a little bit of instruction on where they should go from here. Uh, then again, I don't necessarily love the government always stepping in and doing this sort of thing, but on a hot button topic, I think they could use a little bit of legal guidance. And the other part of this conversation comes down to their recommendation algorithms. So over the last 10 years, we've seen a big increase in recommendation algorithms because they drive content, they allow people to see what they want to see, which therefore keeps them on the platform for longer. Everybody knows the story at this point. But we have to ask, the, these algorithms can sometimes lead towards rabbit holes, as they say. They quote it as possibly bringing people into terrorist cells or even just exposing them to terrorism in general. And, you know, I think a better example, because the terrorism one is pretty obvious. We shouldn't have uh, terrorism on there at all. A better example is content that starts as dieting content and then becomes intermediate fasting content. So, oh, well, you know, you're trying to diet, maybe try intermediate fasting. In the eyes of the algorithm, for all we know, that could the next step could be fasting. And then from there, it could be anorexia content. So we have to be very careful with these algorithms and how they're structured and what kind of videos they enforce and put out there. Quote, in a separate move, the court said Monday it would hear a related appeal brought by Twitter about whether the company could be liable under a federal law called the Anti-Terrorism Act, which allows people to sue people or entities who, quote, aid and abet terrorist acts. The same appeals court that handled the Gonzalez case 
reviewed claims brought by Google, sorry, brought by relatives of Naras Alzafa, a Jordanian citizen, and I probably butchered his name there. I'm extremely sorry. Killed in Islamic atta- in an Islamic attack in Istanbul in 2017, who accused Twitter, Facebook, and Google of aiding and abetting the spreading of militant Islamic ideology, which the companies deny. The question of Section 230 immunity has not been yet been addressed in this case. And this is a hot-button issue. And like I said, in my humble opinion, the companies really need some guidance from the highest court here in the land. So I'm happy to see them stepping in. Now, you know, we've talked about some, you know, not necessarily fun stuff, but important stuff. But now we're going to get to something a little bit more cute. It's our daily delight from the animal rescue site. Grumpy dwarf cat with the most adorable frown makes people smile. That's their headline. So everybody from my generation remembers Grumpy Cat. Really great meme, really cute meme, really versatile meme as well. That's why it was it was amazing. Well, there's there's a new Grumpy Cat, and I'm not trying to replace old Grumpy Cat. Unfortunately, he has passed since then. But this new Grumpy Cat is called Widget. Quote, when you look at Widget, you're likely to notice that she has something that many other cats don't have. She has a frown on her face, and it's permanent, end quote. So Widget was adopted by Michelle, who quickly fell in love with that cute little permanent frown. But, quote, as it turns out, Widget is more than a frowny face. She has a sassy personality and loves attention as well. She knew, Michelle, that other homes may not be able to provide for her special needs, so she adopted her and gave her the home that she needed, end quote. And some of these photos really do remind me of old Grumpy Cat and some of the sassy positions. Yeah, you could definitely tell this cat is a sassy one for sure. If you want to see any of the cute photos or read any of the articles we talked about here, the link is in the description below that like and subscribe button. And that's where you can find all of today's content. Now, with that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.